Section 25 of Life of Sir Walter Raleigh by Louise Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 15. Raleigh's Last Voyage, Part 1. The result of Cecil's foreign policy had been to place James at the head of the Protestant party in Europe. In 1613, it had even seemed possible that war between England and Spain would once more break out. The Spaniards were so alarmed by the attitude of the English that the Spanish ambassador in London was recalled in order that an abler man might be put in his place. The man chosen, Diego Sarmiento de Acuña, afterwards known as the Count of Gandomar, was admirably suited for the purpose. He was deeply impressed with the importance of the task entrusted to him, and put his whole heart into it. He found the king anxious for a marriage between his son Charles and a French princess, but he did not despair of bringing back James in time to a Spanish marriage. Circumstances favored him. Rochester, now Earl of Somerset, had been in favor of the French marriage. But on finding it supported by his opponents, he informed Sarmiento of his readiness to favor the Spanish scheme. Meanwhile, the Parliament summoned in 1614 had shown itself unwilling to listen to the king's demands. James had dissolved it in disgust. He was in great want of money, and this helped to make him turn to Spain once more. The Infanta would bring with her a larger dowry than could the French princess. He thought that if he had the King of Spain as his firm friend, he should be enabled to do without Parliament. Sarmiento was only too ready to welcome James's approaches. He saw that a great struggle between the Protestant powers and the Catholic powers was drawing near, and he believed that if England could be drawn away from the Protestants, their party would fall to pieces. Negotiations were entered into with Spain for the marriage. At first, the Spanish demands were such that even James felt it was impossible to agree to them. But Digby, the English ambassador at Madrid, succeeded in bringing about some slight modifications. He was not in favor of the marriage, but after protesting against it to James, he had agreed to undertake the charge of the negotiations. James, when he had received the modified demand, still hesitated, and the opponents of Spain in the English council determined to do their utmost, while the hesitation still lasted, to make the marriage impossible. Chief amongst these was Sir Ralph Winwood, now secretary. He had been for some years ambassador at The Hague, and was devoted to the Protestant cause, and entirely opposed to Spain. He turned for support in his views to the man who was the embodiment of the spirit of hostility to Spain, the man in whom still breathed the soul of the heroes of Elizabeth's days, Sir Walter Raleigh. Raleigh had often spoken to Winwood of the advantages which might be gained from the colonization of Guiana. It was his darling scheme, and he knew that it was a certain way of striking a blow at Spain. He was convinced from what he had heard whilst in Guiana that there was a gold mine there which might be made a permanent source of riches to the king. These tales of possible gold were very attractive to the ears of Villiers, the king's new favorite. Somerset had fallen from his high position. He was a prisoner in the tower on a charge of murder. He had been succeeded in the king's favor by Sir George Villiers, who had attracted James as Somerset had done 
by his fine person and cheerful disposition. Villiers and Winwood both exerted all their efforts to persuade the king to give Raleigh his liberty and permission to make an expedition to Guiana. It is strange that James should have listened to them just when he was entering into close negotiations with Spain. It seems as if he had hoped to lessen Winwood's objection to the Spanish marriage by allowing him to have his way in this matter at least. On the 19th of March, 1616, a warrant was sent to the lieutenant of the tower, bidding him to allow Raleigh to go free, under the care of a keeper, to make preparations for his voyage. No pardon was granted to Raleigh. His future was to depend solely on his finding the mine. He went out of the tower with the sentence of death still hanging over his head. It is no wonder that after his twelve years of prison life, he eagerly seized any opportunity that offered itself of sharing once more the joys and perils of active life. But the chances of success were small indeed. According to the commission given him for his voyage, he was to take possession of no territory belonging to any Christian prince, to inflict no hurt on any Spanish subject, to do nothing which might endanger the existing peace with Spain. He must have clearly seen how difficult it would be to do this, seeing that Guiana was already in part colonized by Spain. Winwood no doubt hoped that the expedition might tend to bring about a breach with Spain. Raleigh himself spoke to Bacon, perhaps in bravado, about seizing the Mexican fleet, and when Bacon exclaimed, but that would be piracy, answered, Oh, no, did you ever hear of men who are pirates for millions? They who aim at small things are pirates. Besides the likelihood of dangerous consequences, the expedition was unwise from another point of view. The colony in Virginia had only just succeeded in establishing itself. It would have been well if English colonizing efforts had been directed for the time only to the northern continent of America, where there was enough to do, and had left the southern continent to Spain. James's conduct in allowing the expedition, the possible consequences of which he did not trouble himself to consider, is unpardonable. For Raleigh, it may at least be said that he had everything to gain and little to lose. Sarmiento had heard with alarm of the proposed expedition. He looked upon it as a clear act of aggression upon Spain and protested against it vehemently. He believed that once upon the seas, Raleigh would be sure to turn pirate. If Raleigh really wished to go to Guiana, he said, that the king of Spain would gladly send some ships to escort him there and would let him bring back as much gold and silver as he needed. But to this Raleigh could not agree. James did his utmost to pacify Sarmiento by promising that the voyage should lead to no breach with Spain and consoled himself by thinking that at least he had no responsibility in the matter. The preparations for the expedition went rapidly forward. Raleigh prepared to venture his all on it. He spent upon it the £8,000 which he had received from the king in part payment for the Sherborne estate, and his wife sold some property of hers near Mitcham to raise more money. They must have been hopeful of success to be prepared to risk everything on the venture. Others were willing to embark their money on the expedition, tempted by the promises of gold or the prospects of successful colonization. A fine new ship called the Destiny was built for Raleigh. The expedition altogether numbered twelve vessels, two flyboats and a caravel, 
Of these, the destiny of 440 tons burden was far the largest. She was built in the Thames, and when completed lay there with most of the other ships, whilst the final preparations were made. The fleet attracted much attention, and was visited by all the principal persons about the town and court. Among others, the French ambassador, Desmarais, came to see the ships. He met Raleigh accidentally on board and had some talk with him. In reporting this talk to his government, he said that Raleigh had spoken with bitter discontent of the treatment which he had received, and had promised on his return to leave his country and make the king of France the first offer of whatever might fall under his power. The fact that Desmarais did not report this conversation till a month after it had taken place tends rather to make us distrust his statements. If Raleigh had really said anything so important, Desmarais would surely have reported it at once. But it is beyond doubt that Raleigh was in communication with Montmorency, the Admiral of France, and had asked him to get permission from Louis XIII for him to take refuge in a French port when he came back. The man through whom these communications were made was a certain Captain Fague. From documents which have lately been discovered at Simancas, it appears that Fague and another Frenchman, Bell, were to join Raleigh and his fleet off the Isle of Wight with two ships, and to aid him in an attack upon the Mexican fleet, the profit of which was to be shared by the French. The authority for this is a voluntary statement made by Bell at Madrid in 1618. The Frenchmen did not join Raleigh, according to Bell, because they did not wish to go with people who were Huguenots. Almost at the last moment, an attempt was made to divert Raleigh's expedition to another purpose. The ambassador of the Duke of Savoy was in London, asking once more for assistance from James for his master. He suggested to Raleigh how easy it would be for him, if a few of the king's vessels were added to his fleet, to seize Genoa, a port which the Duke of Savoy had long coveted. Genoa was then a rich community of moneylenders, from whom Spain largely drew her supplies. The fact that this would be an easy way of striking a blow at Spain made Raleigh willingly listen to the ambassador's proposals. Even James seems to have entertained the idea for a moment, but it was put a stop to by the conclusion of a definite peace between Spain and Savoy. Sarmiento tried once more to stop the expedition altogether. James said that it was out of his power to do so, but that he would put the case before the council. When the council met, Raleigh's friends came in force and overruled all objections to the expedition. Winwood was bidden to bear a letter to Sarmiento from Raleigh, in which Raleigh stated that he meant to make no attack upon the subjects of the King of Spain. At the same time, a list of the vessels which took part in the expedition was given to Sarmiento. Some weeks before, warnings of the possible coming of Raleigh had been sent out from Madrid to the Indies, and these were afterwards repeated in a more pressing form. Prospects were not very hopeful for Raleigh. In the commission given him by the king, the customary words implying the royal grace and favor had been carefully erased, so that the granting of the commission might not constitute a pardon, and he was said to be under the peril of the law. He was sixty-three years old, too old to face the perils and hardships of such an expedition, but his courage and energy were as great as ever, and he went forth to do what he could, though the way must have seemed dark and stormy before him. 
Even during the very days of his final preparations, James was entering into closer relations with Spain, and was preparing to lay the formal proposals for the marriage before a special body of commissioners. Early in April, 1617, Raleigh sailed out of the Thames with seven of the vessels of his little fleet. The remainder met him at Plymouth. On board his own ship was his eldest son Walter as captain. Young Walter was then in his twenty-fourth year, a bold, open-hearted youth. He had been sent to Oxford in his fourteenth year, and his father had taken care that his studies should be superintended by an able and learned man. He had chosen for his tutor Dr. Daniel Fairclough, or Featley, as he was more generally called, a fellow of Corpus Christi College, Oxford. Young Walter had another tutor by name Hooker, of a Devonshire family, for ordinary purposes, and so was well looked after. Sir Walter himself wrote at length to Featley on the subject of his son's training. Featley says, of his views on the subject, that they showed themselves to proceed from an excellent temper of wisdom and of love to his son. Young Walter seems to have played many pranks and given his tutor some trouble. After he left Oxford, he killed a man in a duel in London and was obliged to leave England for a time. He went on the continent, and it is then that he is supposed to have travelled with Ben Johnson, who was abroad at the time. Tradition says that in London, too, for a time, Walter was under the charge of Ben Johnson, for a story is told of his having once, when Ben Johnson had been partaking too freely of fine old canary, wheeled him in a wheelbarrow into his father's presence, and asked that his tutor might have a lesson in sobriety. The son seems to have had his father's brave, energetic spirit and must have felt full of eager expectation in starting on his first voyage of discovery. One of Raleigh's ships was commanded by his old and faithful friend Camus, on whose testimony the belief in the existence of the mine rested. There had been some difficulty in getting the crews together. The men who had joined were far from being all that Raleigh could have wished, and their character added greatly to the difficulties of the expedition. The orders which Raleigh issued to the commanders of his fleet on the 3rd of May are an admirable proof of his wisdom and show at what perfection of order and discipline he aimed. In every ship, divine service was to be read morning and night, all swearing was to be punished, gambling was forbidden, complete obedience to superiors was to be enforced, all Indians were to be treated with kindness and courtesy. Rules were also laid down with a view to preserving good health amongst the men, and elaborate regulations were made for the management of the fleet. They at first met with much contrary weather which delayed them considerably. One vessel was lost, two others were compelled to put back, and the whole fleet was obliged to put into cork to recruit. At last, on the 6th September, they reached Lanzarota in the Canaries. The inhabitants saw them approach with alarm. They took the English for the Algerine pirates, who then ravaged the Mediterranean and the coasts of Spain and Africa. Raleigh entered into correspondence with the governor, hoping to buy provisions from him. In spite of the governor's promises, they waited in vain. For mine own part, says Raleigh in his diary, I never gave faith to his words, for I knew he sought to gain time to carry the goods of the town, being seven miles from us, into the mountain. In the meanwhile, three English sailors were killed in chance skirmishes by the Spaniards, who persisted in looking upon them as Turks, 
but Raleigh steadfastly refused to break the peace by revenging their death, and at last went on to Gomera, a town on the Great Canary, to get the water and provisions of which he stood in need. Here he fared better. The wife of the governor was of English descent, and in sending letters to her husband, Raleigh sent a present to her of six exceeding fine handkerchiefs and six pairs of gloves, writing at the same time that if there were anything in his fleet worthy of her, she should command it. She sent back answer that she was sorry her barren island had nothing worthy of the admiral, and sent with her letter four great loaves of sugar, baskets of lemons, oranges, grapes, pomegranates, and figs, which Raleigh says were more welcome to him than one thousand crowns could have been. Fresh fruit was just what he needed for his sick men. To show his gratitude to the lady, he sent her two ounces of ambergris, an ounce of extract of amber, a great glass of rose water, a very excellent picture of Mary Magdalene, and a cutwork ruff. This produced more presents from the lady, hens, and more fruit. Meanwhile, the vessels were taking in water, which was done, says Raleigh, without any offense given or received to the value of a farthing. The governor was so satisfied with their behavior that he sent Raleigh a letter for Sarmiento stating how nobly they had behaved. Misfortunes were already crowding upon Raleigh. At Lanzarota he had been deserted by one of his ships under the command of Captain Bailey, who returned to England. Sickness was rife amongst his men, and his diary contains little but the melancholy record of one death after another. They were overtaken by storms and beaten about amongst the Cape Verde Islands. One ship was lost, and others were damaged. One after another the men were struck down, and it seemed as if the best and ablest were fated to die. End of section 25